Let's open our Bibles to First Psalm 126. This will not be the only scripture reading that we'll do. The rest of scripture readings I'll be mentioning in the sermon. Uh, there will be some. But first, we will uh, read Psalm 126, which we just sang. We'll be focusing on the last two verses. It's a song of ascents, which means the people of Israel, they sang this song while they were ascending. They're going to the temple to worship the Lord. It says, When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we are like those who dream. Uh, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with singing. Then they said among the, the nation, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap, reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Interestingly, captivity, going away from home, coming back, and then there's something about the language of harvesting, sowing and harvesting. Uh, it's very similar to the theme of the book of Ruth. Then Naomi and uh, she and her family went away from the Lord's covenant community and became destitute and came back at the time of harvesting. There was a famine, there was a harvesting, and it's very intentional. I hope that there's another time that I can explain this, but uh, first uh, we'll be focusing on the Lord's Day 17 of the Heidelberg Catechism which talks about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very short. There's only one question and answer. Lord's Day 17, question and answer 45. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by His resurrection, He has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we who are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge for us of our blessed resurrection. And it says in the footnote number 3, Romans 8, 11, 1 Corinthians 15, and Philippians 3. Uh, if I may just go one of them, which is the second one, 1 Corinthians 15, well-known passage. I'll just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. <laughs> Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible, the scripture, is full of agricultural language. One reformer, I think it was Zwingli, um, I tried to find his name, but uh, I didn't confirm this, but uh, if I, my memory is correct, I believe it was Zwingli, and I'm paraphrasing, and he said, he said, I think he said, the farmers are the ones who, because they're close to nature, they're the ones who are supposed to know, they know the Bible, the most. And again, the reason is the scripture is filled with many agricultural farming references. 
The first man, our first parent, Adam, his occupation was a farmer. Throughout the both Old Testament and New Testament, many parables, many prophecies related to the farming language. I'll give you an example. Um, for instance, um, Isaiah 53, verse 6, we all like sheep, so the farmer knows the sheep. Have gone astray, astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Matthew 18, verse 12, if a man has a hundred sheep, one of them goes astray. And then when a minister makes a, makes a sermon on that, and he says from the pulpit, well, the scripture, the Holy Spirit knew what kind of characteristics sheep have. Sheep are such a stupid animal. And then farmers who are listening will be nodding while they're listening because they couldn't agree more. Yep, that, that is true. I, I dealt with some uh, sheep and goats and they are, they are extremely stupid. The prophet Isaiah said it's very true. They like to go astray. They don't learn a lesson from their previous experience. They make the same mistakes again and again. And farmers, they know. And then the scripture calls us sheep. We are like sheep. And the more you know about the farming, the you know and you can apply and you can understand what the Holy Spirit wants to say in the scripture. Another example is Christ, when Christ said in Luke chapter 13 verse 6, talking about the barren fig tree. A man had a fig tree planted and it was barren for three years. Cut it down, the master said. Why do you want to waste the ground? But the keeper of the vineyard said, Sir, let it be alone this year also. I'll dig around and fertilize it. If it bears fruit, that's good. But if not, then you can cut it down. So that dilemma. One more year? Or should I give it another try? Unless you are a farmer, you wouldn't really appreciate I mean, you wouldn't really understand the dilemma that the farmer has. Now, God has been patient for his people. Three years looking for repentance. This is in the context of a, a people of Israel. Is it, it is not unjust, even if God brings an axe and chop it off the tree right away. But because he's a gracious and patience, patient, he gives another year. And looking for fruit. So again, filled with farming references. The whole scripture, the whole redemptive history, from Adam to Revelation, can be summarized in the farming term. Two words, planting and harvesting. Sowing and reaping. The Apostle Paul, when he talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the most important event of history, he described the resurrection like this, as I just read. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become 
the first fruits. Fruits. Again, the farming reference. First fruit of those who have fallen asleep. You and I and all the believers. His resurrection is the starting point of the glorious harvest. Farmers know by looking at the first fruit, they have roughly some idea that whether this year, this season is going to be a successful year. After Christ's resurrection, those who are abiding in him, in him will rise also because he rose from the dead and we abide in him, we will also rise again, as the catechism explains. So, what we will, what we will do today is that we will study the doctrine of resurrection through the lens of this whole redemptive history. We'll do it a little bit differently through the lens of the agricultural language that the redemptive history uses. And then, namely, planting and harvesting. So the theme is very simple. His resurrection is the first fruit. This came from 1 Corinthians 15. And the first point, harvesting, sorry, planting. You have to plant first. Planting and the second, harvesting. So our starting point of a small journey uh, start from 1 Corinthians 15. Christ is risen from the dead. He's the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. And let us listen to what Christ says in Matthew 13. Matthew is full of many parables. If you can open your Bible with me. Matthew 13, 37. So if your eyes can just skim through as I read, they'll be, they'll be nice. So Jesus, Jesus told the parable of wheat and tares. The wheat had to be gathered. Tares will be gathered as well and it will be thrown into the fire. Wheat will be gathered into the barn. And Jesus said, He who sow good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The story goes like this. The... Uh, the good man, good farmer, he sows good, good things, wheat. And then his enemy came and he also planted tares, bad seeds. Verse 40 and verse 41. At the end, the Son of Man will send out his angels and, listen to what it says, gather tares. Again, at the end, harvesting will happen and they will be burned in the fire. Verse 43. But the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, if you flip your Bible a um, few pages uh, before, that's the chapter 9, chapter 9, 37. So another, another key point. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in his harvest. <coughs> Therefore pray, the Lord of harvests. The Christ referred to Christ calling his father, the Lord of harvest. Cross-reference Matthew 24, 31. At the end of age, Christ will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather all together his elect. 
from here and there again, gathering of the fruits or crops. So, there are so many other passages I can go to, but I will just show you uh, uh, these ones. And remembering these ones, uh, in Matthew, when Christ said he will gather his elect by sending his angels, we can think as God as God the Father as farmer, the Lord of harvest, sending his angels, servants, to gather the crops. So you can imagine that um, in, in your head, because that's the language the Lord used. Now, harvest is a, it's a joyful part. At the end of the season, the farmers look forward harvesting. That's why they've been doing all those hard works. But if you want to harvest something, first you have to put something in the ground. No seed, no fruit. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they had to learn that in a hard way. Before he sinned, he could wander around in the garden and he could see any fruit except the one fruit, one tree in the garden. And he can take the fruit whenever he wanted, piece of cake, and just ate them. But after he sinned, he had to labor. He had to sweat. Genesis 3. Let's go to Genesis 3. I mean, I'm sure you know the passage very well, but let's, it's always good to thoroughly examine Genesis 3.15. Everybody knows that passage. So after he sinned, the Lord said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Seed, eh? It's interesting. I'll come back to that. And then later, two verses later, and, and to Adam... The Lord said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, uh, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil shall eat of it. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. So well, so again, before the fall, uh, there's no need of toil and labor. It's pretty clear. And now, after he sinned, he had to labor. He had to plow. He had to plant. He had, he had to water. He had to water. And then thorns and thistles came and made it the labor very difficult. So again, uh, agricultural language. And this curse of toil and labor came along with the worst enemy, death. The curse with the, along with the curse of death. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Cursed is the ground for your sake. And then in sweat, your face, sweat of your face, you shall eat, your, uh, eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are. To the dust you shall return. Which means you will die. So you can see that this curse of death is connected to uh, the curse of uh, labor. 
So Adam and uh, Adam, our first parent, he had to labor, and he also, uh, by description of Lord's Day four, he also made, he also put us, all of us, under this curse, and so we have to work as well. Yet, here's the thing. But still, God was gracious. He was gracious that at the end of the labor, Adam could still bring food on the table. We just sang from Psalm 126, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. After long hours of intense labor, back-breaking labor, or quarreling with customers, or a mental exhaustion, at the end of the day, you come home, you see you're, you're enjoying food, um, and your children sleeping well and having nice time and enjoying food because of your labor, and you have peace in your mind, and you bless the name of the Lord. It, it was hard to deal with all those frustrations while you're working and all the stress during the labor, but at the end, you look at the paycheck that you received and you forget your hardships. And that is called life. That's what the Lord, how the Lord designed life. And at the end, it's a curse, yet at the end, there is a blessing. And that is how God designed our lives. That is also how God designed redemptive history. You see, in the curse that God gave to Adam, even in that curse, God foreshadowed blessings. He foreshadowed the work of Jesus Christ. God foreshadowed how Christ will save his people from the destruction. How? The same way that Adam did, by laboring, by planting seed into the ground, plow the ground, water the ground, and dug around and fertilize the plant, and, and at the end, harvesting the fruit. Labor, blessings. Now, Christ said in Luke chapter 27, 20, uh, sorry, 24, 27, that all the, all the Old Testament, the writings of Moses and prophets and Psalms were written about him. So even this Psalm, Psalm 126, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. So how can you say this passage? I mean, it's about the captivity, people coming from captivity. Yes, it is. How can you say Psalm 126 is about Jesus Christ? Did he sow a seed in tears and brought his crops with rejoicing? And the answer is, yes, he did. Yes, he did plant and he is in the process of bringing crops with him rejoicing. First, he, plant, he did plant seed. What kind of seed is that? Well, that, that is the seed of woman. Genesis 3.15 Christ himself planted himself so that later those who belong to him, those who are united with him, may die with him and rise with him together. 
You see, when God announced the curse that men will have to toil and labor for fruits, God gave a promise, as we read from Genesis 3.15, that the seed of women will bruise the head of serpent. In Hebrew, original Hebrew language, the seed of woman, seed, which can be translated offspring or descendant, is the same word as, literally, seed that you plant in the ground. And here's the key passage, John 12, 23. Christ said, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. He was talking about himself. He said those words before his death on the cross. He, had to, he has to die, and he has to be buried, just like a seed buried in the ground. And this work of Christ, planting the seed for the redemption of man, was very intensive, bitter, exhausting, shameful, and excruciating labor. But by his labor... We can rest. By his toil and his sweat of his face, we can enjoy the fruit of the garden. By his labor, we enjoy the fruit of from the tree of life. But as long as John chapter 12 is concerned, again, very difficult labor, but in, some, uh, in the same chapter, John 12, 27, Christ said, Now my soul is troubled. And he's expressing how labor-intensive that his work was. Father, save me from this labor. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. However, let us not forget, and I emphasize once again, that the Son of Man, the seed of woman, first, before you want to harvest something, something has to go into the ground, which means he had to die. Before his resurrection, he had to die. Just as the seed has to die in the ground before it produces fruits. So Christ planted the seed of woman himself. In other place, Christ describes this seed going into the ground with the different expressions. He said, As a Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, will be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. So the language is very clear. Second, so he planted seed of woman and he resurrected. But does that mean his ministry stopped? Stops? No. He still is working, laboring. Second, he plants another kind of seed in another kind of field. In, uh, in the other type of earth, namely, dust, he planted his word. We can say previously, he planted himself into the heart of the earth. He plants another seed in the heart of dust. You, 
Namely, he plants his word. Remember, we are made out of dust, and to dust we return. Christ plants his word to revive us, revive our hearts. That's why in places like Matthew 13, parable of seed, again, Christ calls his seed, the seed, his word. Behold, there was a sower went out to sow, and some seed fell by the wayside. Birds came singing, ate the seed. Some fell on the stony ground, and they did not have a much earth scorched by the sun. Some fell along the thorns. Thorns came up, choked them, symbolized the pleasures of this world. But the seed fell on the ground. Good soil produced many crops, some hundredfold, sixty, thirty. He who has the ears to hear, let him hear. That's how the parable goes. So Christ, he plants his word in believers' heart. And that is also, I tell you, labor-intensive. Why? Because in another passage, prophet Isaiah said, we are all like a sheep, like to go astray. We have this tendency. If we, have, we hear the things that we disagree, if I feel like I'm being chastised, I want to run away. We have this sinful tendency, very natural tendency, to reject the word instead of repenting. The disciples of Christ, it took some time, long time actually, for them to understand his basic message, that he had to die and rise again. Peter said, even rebuked Christ by, no way, Lord, so when the word comes into your heart, I wonder about why is that? Why is that so hard for planting a seed into someone's heart? You see, the, when the word comes into your heart, inside of your heart, what happens is that there has to be some kind of something that has to happen. And we call that mortification of your old self. Let me explain how that works. So when you plant something into the ground... Jesus used the language, the seed had to die. There has to be some kind of death happening. Just as something has to die in the ground to produce a new life, when the word comes, your old self has to die in you. Your sinful tendencies, your sinful practices, your sexual immorality, your old ways of life, your stubbornness, all the elements of old nature has to die. And Apostle Paul calls that in Romans 6, crucifixion of the old man. In other places, it says, Apostle Paul says, Christ nailed those old elements to the cross along with his flesh. His flesh died, so does your old nature must die when the seed comes to, into the dust painful we don't like it involves with shame tears but remember congregation to you who abides in the Lord Jesus Christ this is a good news 
the suffering that you participate, as I said before, at the end, there's blessings. It is a curse, yet at the end, there's a blessing. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy, who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed of sowing. In other words, in our spiritual battle, those who continually weep and cry because of genuine, they genuinely repent from their sins and the word, because of the word that rebukes you, the word is planted in you, at the end it will bring, produce delicious fruits. He who continue, continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. That's the promise. Bring, bring his sheaves with him. So this can be applied in both ways. Jesus Christ, his works, at the end of his works, he'll bring his crops to heaven. And now us, the planting, the happening in our hearts, that those who genuinely cry and weep for their wrongdoings and dying of the old nature, a seed that is for the seed that they planted in your heart will also bring delicious fruits. That is a salvation. You will be part of the pleasant harvest. So, this kind of shape, this message shapes our perspective of the gospel and gospel ministry. Gospel ministry is planting a seed, the word, and harvesting crops the, fruit of, uh, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the transformation of people is something that we should rejoice together. When a sinner repents, a sinner repents and comes back, we rejoice together. It's a harvest. Again, the labor is intensive, difficult, bitter. And home visits for the elders can be very difficult in that sense. Ministers preaching some of the messages can be very difficult, but indeed, indeed, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. And the question is, for you, congregation, do you want to participate? Do you want to be part of this glorious harvest? Actually, you already are. You are already part of the harvest, harvest but you can do more. You can do more by supporting ministry. There are many various ministries. Support your pastor. Help your pastor. Not to discourage your pastor, but help your uh, pastor to do his job. We have a missionary. Help your missionary who is in the front of the field. Don't discourage him. But support him. Not only financially, but spiritually with the prayers. Go out there, help him out. Because ministers and the missionaries, you have to understand, they hold the keys to divide the word of God that has to be planted in people's heart. Also support one another in the congregation. Christ said, we are the light of the world. And through this light, the light of Salem, you are seen in Bonneville, we pray that many crops be brought in, in Christ's name. Then when the word of God goes into someone's heart and awakens in that person new self, new life, 
transformation, getting rid of old sinful ways, it is always amazing. It is always joyful to witness that. The seed, the seed that is remained dormant for a while, but with the water you plant comes out. Even that water is from Christ. John chapter 4, 13. Whoever drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that goes into him, I shall give him, will become a fountain. A fountain, the water springing up into everlasting life. The water is Christ himself. Paul calls the water that the people of Israel drank from the rock, the rock Moses struck is Christ himself. In other words, the gospel ministry has everything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, union with the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the language that the uh, Lord's Day 17 is using. A third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. First, by the resurrection, he conquered death, that he might make us to share in the righteousness, his righteousness that he obtained for us uh, by his death. Second, his, by his power, we will be also raised to, into new life, again, new life, death, old na nature, new life, new nature. And third, his resurrection is a pledge to us that our, we will be for sure uh, rise again with him. It will be blessed harvest. Now in the Old Testament there are many uh, regulations, laws. One of them is the keeping the Sabbath. When you talk about toil and labor, uh, the man shall labor for six days and then he shall rest on the on the Sabbath day, the Sabbath law is closely linked to our labor and toil. The Sabbath law, Sabbath law is applied to people and also animals and even foreigners. Regardless who you are, whether you're animal or human, you have to rest. Now, let us think why God gave us Sabbath regulations. As I mentioned earlier, all the Old, Old Testament rituals, laws, prophets... And psalms and writings are written for Jesus Christ. Six days you labor. Labor, God's curse. At the end of the labor, there is a blessings. There's a sweet blessings. Six days you shall labor, seventh day you rest. Six days. You are reminded of God's curse, but the seventh day, there is a freedom from God's curse. So what happened on the Sabbath day? Well, about 2,000 years ago, on the Sabbath day, Christ, he was in a tomb. Again, at the heart of the earth. He was buried like a seed in the ground, it was the ultimate result of his work. It was ultimate stage of his humiliation. We learned that in the catechism. Death and burial. 
And on the same day, the people of the Old Testament had to rest. Meaning, by Christ's work, his ultimate work, at the same time while he's working, lying on the ground, you enjoy your eternal rest. So in the Old Testament, all those rituals, sacrifice, animal sacrifices, and then um, burning incense and so on, they're looking forward to the death of Jesus Christ. Focused on this sacrificial aspect, death of Christ. So the seventh day, um, Christ died and we rest. But after he resurrected, on, we rest on the first day, not on the Saturday. Because now we don't look forward to the death of Jesus Christ because they already happened. Behold, all things are gone and new things have come, Christ claimed. He rose from the dead. We look forward to the future, his resurrection, our resurrection, the first day of the week. His resurrection the first day of week gave a new Christian tradition that in the New Testament time that we take rest on the first day of the week because we look backward to the established work of Jesus Christ. We rest and remember Christ's work. So you can see that how Christian tradition was shaped by alone by Christ's works alone. And we look forward to the future resurrection of our bodies. And they will mark the end of the age. At the end of age, trumpet will sound. He will gather believers from here and there. Again, using the farming language. And we will be admitted to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The feast after the great harvest. Matthew 25, 34, I will end the sermon with this. Then the kings will say to those who are right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those, you brothers and sisters who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you look forward to the feast that comes after the harvest.